Hi, this is Emily Gibson, co-executive director and co-founder of ATX Television Festival. And this is Jennifer Morgan, director of programming. And you're listening to The TV Campfire. And this week, we are releasing our Q&A that we hosted after we screened the premiere of The Terror Infamy. Mm -hmm. And then it's followed by a special interview with George Takei and our podcast HQ with Ashlyn Viscosi, who is one of our staff members and a huge George Takei fan. I feel like this was her highlight of the weekend, and it's pretty phenomenal. So definitely stay tuned and listen to that, which is also funny because (laughs) when we first locked in, that we were doing the screening and we started talking to AMC and they started talking about who could come with it. And we obviously very much wanted George to be part of this. There was a mini debate in our staff and this is like big staff. This isn't even just like our small staff team about whether it was George Takei or George Takei. And you would think that most people know it's Takei, but it is interesting how many people are unsure. And if they thought it was George Takai, they were very sure of that. They, they were, were very sure. Like there was a We were we we're all very confident that we <laughs> that we knew the right pronunciation. It was a pretty big argument. We also had Zendaya at the festival this year, and there was also a lot of arguments about whether it was Zendaya or Zendaya. So I feel like the two months leading into the festival, it was George Takei Zendaya. George Takei Zendaya <laughs> just on repeat over and over in our office. Many of you are out there rolling your eyes because you already knew those George Takei. But I'm telling you, there are many people out there that don't. So we are setting the record straight right now. Yeah, the two of us had it right, though. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so don't roll your eyes at us as the other people in the office that didn't know. Uh, but this one really came about in such a cool way because we started talking to AMC early on about this show and how we wanted to have not just a normal Q&A afterwards. Yeah, it originally started as a panel we wanted to do like a deep dive into like the creative world of a show. And so we were trying to find a series that would be a good one for that kind of conversation. And we were talking to AMC about a couple of different things and they were really excited about the series and how really like meticulous the production was. This is a story that's, you know, set in post-World War II in, you know, Japanese-American internment camps in this really troubling time in American history that there's really not that doesn't get represented yeah. in in TV and pop culture and so it's a very, you know, unique story and they're they're coming in season 2 of this anthology series and you know, the first season was very much like a period piece like set on an old-timey ship, you know, <laughs> very like different. out in out in the middle of the ice and and uh monsters and such. And so to do this new iteration that is very like historically grounded in a very like emotional period of history for a lot of people was really really interesting and moving to us and to add in the genre like horror elements makes it even more interesting you're already looking at a terrifying time yeah and add in a different horror element to that already terrifying time yeah which i mean is really you know the horror part is as with many you know genre shows is like is an analog for yeah. the things that these people are going through. And, you know, it was really important. You'll hear them talk about in this conversation that it was really important to get as much of this, like, really, really right from all departments. And so so this panel features the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer, Alexander Wu, George Takei, who is a consulting producer and uh, stars in the series, J.R. Hawbaker, who is the costume designer, 
and John Conroy, who is director of photography. And so what we really wanted to do is showcase like all of the different elements that have to come together to make a series like this work on all these different levels. And, you know, AMC was very, very excited about this and actually rushed the not rushed. They, they did it right. But, uh, <laughs> they did it in the they, appropriate way. They just did it quickly. Yeah. They <laughs> they sped up their post-production timeline for us in order to get us this first episode um, in time for the festival. And I think it, it made for an even richer conversation, you know, having our audience be able to see that first episode in its entirety and then to have this amazing team there to talk about it afterwards and really be able to viscerally understand, you know, what they're talking about and, and how these different elements come into play um, and how personal a story this is for not only, you know, Alexander and George, but for a lot of their cast members and crew members that they talk about, like, dropping other jobs to come work on this because it was such a personal story for them. Which I think they do a deep dive into George, George's personal relationship with it, which is fascinating, and how he was even brought onto the project as a producer before being an actor Mm -hmm. on it, right? Yeah, Alex approached him, and he talks about how, you know, it it feels like a very personal, you know, like, life mission for him to be able to make people aware of this this time in history. And having experienced it himself, like, he has such a unique point of view, obviously, to offer. And so in releasing this, uh, the first episode— premiered on August 12th, so we're releasing this after the first episode so that you two can go watch the pilot and really have that background for it. Not all of our Q&As need that. We're very (laughs) anti-spoilers in what we're doing, but this one because of really the conversation we wanted to have, which is a lot about costumes and a lot about the cinematography of it. We felt that that was probably pretty important for you to have seen it the before you actually yeah. <laughs> uh, listen to this Q&A. So please, if you haven't watched it, go watch it. It does air right now on um, Mondays on AMC at 9, 8 central. And then make sure you keep listening afterwards for an interview with George Takei from our podcast HQ. So without further ado, here is the Q&A for The Terror Infamy. Well... <laughs> That was incredible. My name is Richard Whitaker. I'm the screens editor for the Austin Chronicle, and it is my incredible pleasure to uh, be moderating the Q&A for uh, this screening of AMC's second season of the historical horror, um, The Terror, Infamy. Um, I'm just going to get up on the stage because we have quite a packed panel for you today. Okay, let me introduce first the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer, Alexander Wu. Co-costume designer, J.R. Holbaker. Director of photography, John Conroy. And last, but far from least, actor, series consultant, activist, and 110-pound tuna boxing champion of San Pedro, George Takei. So, Alex, I'll start off with, with you. I mean, the terror of the first season was such a huge success for AMC, and this combination of horror 
and historical event was you know, hit people so hard. When did infamy become part? Of, you know, the the first iteration of the extension of um, of the terror. And when did they, you know you, they say to you this is the direction? Oh. <laughs> The spirits strike again. Uh, that this was the direction that they wanted to uh, take the show in. Well, I have to give credit to my co-creator Max Bornstein, who uh, originated the idea at the beginning of last year. So it was quite a blitz. We put all this together in uh, about a, about a year and a half. That's, that's <laughs> kind of ridiculous turnaround for a, a, a show of this of this scale and complexity. Uh, well, we. Give a lot of credit to John and uh, uh, our other DP Barry Dunleavy for shooting a ten-hour uh, <laughs> movie in eighty-six days. So, George, when, uh, how did you come on board with this project? Because you know, obviously, this is something you know very near and dear to you because you were actually in uh, the internment camps, and later in the season, that's where we see this that this goes. So, how did you become part of this project? Well, one day I got a call from Alex. He uh, lives in the same neighborhood that we do, and uh, he said he'd like to come over and talk about something. And he came over and he explained the project to me. I consider um, this uh, chapter of American history, the uh, uh, imprisonment of uh, Japanese Americans, simply because we happen to look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor, to be... Uh, an important chapter of American history, and it's my life mission to raise the awareness of it. And so when he described the story, I said, it is an honor and a privilege and my responsibility to accept uh, the uh, project as a uh, consultant. And then he said, You're an actor, too, aren't you? <laughs> How would you like to be in it? And I said, I will participate wholly in whatever way you want me to. And that's how I happen to be uh, in the cast as well. I, I should add, it would be nuts to have George Takei consult on the show and not be in it. <laughs> so was the, the part there before he came on board, or did you, or did you write it specifically for him, or was the, uh, the grandfather figure always there? Oh, I... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was... I, I felt like I had to write something for George, you know, for, uh, to, to, to honor him and what he's done. So this is very much a sort of gift to him. Um, and I feel blessed. <laughs> so, I mean, you were... You really, in a lot of ways, grew up in in the camps and in this in this in this situation because you were, I believe, five. I was yes, five years old. So, when, in your role as a consultant, what did that really mean, and and, and who were you? Who did you feel you were helping? You know, because there's so much of this that you remember. You remember the period. You remember the camps. But there's you know. So, what did your role as a series consultant? What did that really come to? Well, my true experience of uh, incarceration happened when I was a child from five to eight and a half, uh, four years, the duration of the war. And my real experiences are, I, can, I call it uh, an adventure of discovery. This Southern Californian boy was taken 
and transport it two-thirds of the way across the country to the swamps of Arkansas um, and plunked in it. My father said we were on a vacation to a place called Arkansas. Sounded exotic to me. <laughs> Arkansas. And it really was an exotic place for me. The swamps with all the weird noises, the hootings and the, and the squawks that came from the, uh, what I call the jungle outside the barbed wire fence and, uh, the creatures that I found uh, in the camp uh, around the bayou. Um, there were wiggly black fish that I caught and put in a jar and watched them and they started growing legs and soon they lost their tail and it became magically a frog. <laughs> I mean, those are the actual experiences that, that I remember. It was when I became a teenager and became very curious about uh, our uh, imprisonment that uh, I became a voracious reader and tried to learn as much as I could, but I couldn't find anything in, bo in uh, books, history books or civics books. And so I uh, engaged my father in after-dinner conversations, and uh, he was the one that shared his experience his pain, his uh, anguish, and also his sense of, uh, of, as a member of the community, the importance of building a community when people were so dispre uh, depressed and uh, anguished. And he shared with me his feelings, but also I learned about uh, American democracy from my father. He said it's a people's democracy, and the people can do amazing things, but people are also fallible human beings, and they make mistakes. President uh, Roosevelt was a great president in the 30s when he was able to pull the uh, nation up from a crushing depression and gave them jobs and brought the... Uh, the uh, nation back to health. But he was also a fallible human being. And when the country was swept, to, uh, swept up by war hysteria and racism, he got stampeded with them and made a terrible mistake. A great president, when he makes a mistake, makes terrible mistakes. And we paid the price for it. And so he said it's important for us as people who believe in the ideals of uh, democracy, to be actively engaged in the process. And that's how I became an activist, my father's guidance. Uh, so I was just wondering, just by show of hands, how many people here knew about the internment camps and the internment process before this? So that's a, that's Fantastic. A, that's a good percentage, but uh, I, I was... One of the things I was wondering about is that there is kind of this historical responsibility when you're doing this of getting, of being accurate and telling people about something. But at the same time, you're trying to weave the horror aspects and very specifically kind of Japanese mythology into this. And I was wondering about that, about how you struck that line of not being too much of a straightforward horror series or too much of a historical and kind of keeping that balance that the first season achieved. Well, 
Well, from the historical side, I recognize we have a responsibility because there has been uh, criminally very little uh, done on screen uh, about the internment. So uh, even though a lot of people may have read about it in history books, very few, few people have seen what it looks like inside an internment camp. And a lot of these details, the round the roundup of uh, of uh, Japanese Americans, of uh, leaders of the community on Terminal Island, the night of Pearl Harbor, uh, a number of uh, of events that uh, that happened over the course of our show, we uh, have a great responsibility to show these in uh, as much detail and as accurately as possible. So that you know, we have people like George and uh, a number of organizations like the Japanese American National Museum and Dead Show and the Heart Mountain Foundation that uh, that helped us with that. That. On the horror side of it, uh, the, the strategy of the show, the, the idea behind, uh, behind this has always been to uh, use the genre of Japanese ghost stories of Kaidan and their descendants, the Japanese horror movies like The Ring and The Grudge uh, that, uh, that we love, uh, as an analog for the terror of the historical experience. So rather than telling this story from a 35,000 foot docudrama level, I want to tell it from a very personal level, um, a micro, micro level, uh, so that you feel like you're in the skin of these people, of these characters, and build an empathy for them over the course of 10 weeks. Uh, and uh, if we've done our jobs right, then you know the terror you feel watching your favorite horror movie will be analogous to the terror of what these people really went through. So I thought that was, that was the approach that uh, we in the writer's room took to telling the story. Uh, the, you could feel a lot of Kaiden in, Gaiden in this, which if you've never seen is, is one of the seminal Japanese um, horror anthology films. It's just, you know, so how much of the mythology did you know before going in? Because it feels like you're really pulling on some very specific parts. We did a pretty deep dive. I knew some as a fan, but you know, certainly, you know, uh, it was a, a crash course uh, uh, myself. But then, you know, uh, we were the beneficiaries of some of, of a number of geniuses, uh, not the least of which are two of the people. Uh, well, I'll include George. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking about the production. You probably should. No, uh, uh, but uh, uh, in terms of. Uh, Building a world, we we had the world that John built through the cinematography, the world that J.R. built through the wardrobe, the world that Jonathan McKinstry built in the production. You know, I don't know if any of you have been to Vancouver recently, but it doesn't look like 1940 Southern California. <laughs> so we and and we used British Columbia to serve as as Southern California, Eastern Oregon, the South Pacific. Japan. Uh, am I forgetting? I mean, New Mexico, for God's sakes. So it's like North Dakota. I, like most of the United States uh, was, and that that's no small feat. And and that's you know, I mean, as uh, as a writer, I put up a little theater in my brain that I hope you know it'll look that good. And and what uh, we all just saw, I think, far exceeded uh, what I could have in my little pea brain imagined. Uh, this world to be so I owe a great debt to uh, to our design team and I, I have to ask you JR about the the design process because you're not simply doing <laughs> doomed uh, <laughs> you're not simply doing a period piece you're doing a period piece about a migrant community who's pulling on two different cultures and you have to create the costumes that are going to 
indicate that. So I was wondering about the design process there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, I had a, um, I, I'm part of a co-design team on this one, Tish Monahan, so we, we both attacked it together, and I was part of the early development and conceptualization and a lot of the kimono and, and diving into the history. Um, for me, it was really important, and we all talked about this actually in grounding this in reality. We wanted to have a real strong sense of doing respect to the storyline and to the, there are people who remember this, like George, and, and, and um, I sat, I spent weeks here, um, well, not here, because I'm in Austin right now, but in Los Angeles, <laughs> um, uh, and I went, we went to Terminal Island, and we sat with survivors in their, in their parlors, in their living rooms, with like a 101-year-old survivor, um, from Terminal Island, and he poured over his family albums with us, and um, and you know we heard their stories and listened to his harmonica playing that he still had from being a little boy on Terminal Island, and and we sat with many senseis. Uh, it's just open, and the whole community was pretty amazing. I have to say they really opened their stories and their hearts to us, and and um, we sat sat with several Buddhist temples that had congregation members. And so the reality was really important, and I wanted to dig in and have texture and things that John's camera could pick up on that would help tell the humanity of what was going on. But also, um, the more and more I sat with people, I just realized the emotional content of what they had gone through, too, was, was important to tap into. So as much as we wanted to be realistic and tell a historical drama, the emotional context of the horror of going through it and and um, and I think that's where we all united and, and figured out how to use the horror genre, like Alex was saying, to kind of tap into the emotional context of of how to tell this story and do justice to the people who had gone through it. Um, I'm trying to think of like one of the things. Actually, John and I were just reminiscing and talking, and I, I had forgotten a little bit that the initial kimono, I guess, in context of like the new and the old meeting, um, there's a lot of like old world, new world that, you know, Nisei and Issei stories that have, have that collide in the terror. And the kimono ended up being just like art and life reflecting itself because the one that Kiki wears, Yuko, was originally, we were, get, we were saying white and red from, I think it was just a jumping off point. We were, we were going to do this white and red kimono. And I was like, that's great. Geisha did it and they did it well and we all love it. And it's, you know, it's the snow woman story from traditional um, horror. But I was in, in the context of thinking about it from a heightened sense, what we could do as storytellers. Um, I kept going back to this, the horror genre. And and even in things like, um, you had brought up actually a Suicide Club from 2001 as a reference. And so I had, and I had this image of a still from there and then also Vertigo and even Suspiria from 77. And I had even thought of like an Argento film, like Profundo Russo, which was a Di Giallo. Um, but this horror context, there was this, this color that kept coming through and it was this almost acidic green, like a gray, green, ghoulish, gray, green color. And what we ended up doing was transferring that onto the kimono that we ended up building for Kiki's character. Now, it is a horror genre and a lot of stuff. Hopefully, you'll tune in. And, you know, she has to do a, several things in, <laughs> in, in this kimono. So we ended up having to build it. So we sort of, um, you know, I had come from Man in the High Castle, so I had already done a lot of uh, obsessive research over, over, you know, Ozu films and, and um, Kurosawa and, and lot, lots of things. But, um, but I got to dive even deeper into it here, and we actually were able to build the kibono from scratch and have to make multiples. 
And um, we tried very hard to, to build it from the traditional standpoint. Uh, we have one that is hand done and it, ha it pulls on Yuzen uh, rice paste uh, resist dyeing and we do hand embroidery. And we actually developed that fabric that you saw in her kimono to make it feel a little bit more um, like wrinkled skin texture, just ever so slightly has a little parchment feel to it that has a, a crinkle in it that, you know. So we did, we did uh, ship in the Chiriman fabric from Kyoto and we use that on Masayos, so that's a very traditional style um, that we used in that fabric. But we developed yukos from head to toe, and that was a combination of old world techniques and new world techniques because we had to also fight the um, epic schedule <laughs> that was shooting shooting this film on an eight day schedule. So we we did make we made one like the one you saw in this was actually a hero that was a very handmade garment and then later we jumped into techniques that were more like sublobation which is printing them and we use those to help us um, make the multiples that we will need may not stay pristine it may not it may not stay <laughs> pristine and john the uh the first season uh uh i can imagine the dps were basically just went okay so basically there's just a nightmare of white balance uh, which, if you haven't seen the first season, it's it's all icebound. But so that had a very distinctive look, and you know, right from that first incredible sequence on the dock, which is for me one of the best establishing sequences I've seen this year, um, you establish a different palette, different tone. I was wondering about developing the look of the film uh, of the series, and particularly of because you know you have to come out of the gate with something that, ju that isn't just season one, part two, that that it's opening sequence. Yeah, for sure. Um, the first um, season looked fantastic. Um, they had different different uh, challenges, I suppose, in terms of trying to shoot in stages and stuff and make it look like the Arctic, where we were probably a little bit more location-based. In fact, a lot more location-based. So um, we had different challenges, as Alex said, to try and make uh, Vancouver feel and, and, and look like California. But um, I think ultimately we wanted our show to have its own sort of uh, stamp, its own uh, grammar and stuff like that. Even though we really wanted the horror to be there, uh, it was most important for us that the story, we shot the story well first, and then, you know, the horror, the horror will fit in after that. Um, so I think we approached it mostly from just getting the right tone in terms of the period, right, in terms of the color and the saturation and stuff like that. And then our director, Joseph uh, Vladaika, is a, is a great guy. Was um, He had a great vision in terms of, for example, the beginning sequence with the family and stuff. We tried to make them ensemble Ozu pieces. And so we, call, we actually started calling him Jozu. <laughs> uh, just, um, but he he always um, had a great vision as well. So um, between all of us, really, we just we wanted to pay respect to the first series, but at the same time, we wanted it to feel like very much something different, but within the same sort of horror genre. Okay, I think it's time we uh, throw this out to the audience for some questions. So uh, stick your hand up if you've got a question. Right there. Um, we already resolved this, but um, I think I found most interesting about the research 
I, I don't know a better way to answer that than yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's it's quite a varied experience, you know. That uh, um, and there's there's a lot of nuances uh, uh, to it. Um, you know, uh, there's been a lot uh, written about the 442, the, the battalion that served the the all Japanese battalion uh, company, I should say, that served uh, in uh, in Europe. Uh, we're taking a bit of a different. Uh, angle on it, so one that's uh, that that's been told a little bit less. So I, I think I think that'll be that'll still hold some surprises. Oh wow! Oh wow! Uh huh. I mean, there's there's an amazing irony to you know to uh, to Japanese Americans who were sent off to to fight, and then came home and you know you know to find their people imprisoned. Well, there's uh, another aspect to that story. Yes, um, they did volunteer to go. Well, there's a little bit more history. Right after Pearl Harbor. Young Japanese Americans, like all young Americans, rushed to their recruitment centers to volunteer to serve in the military. This was an act of patriotism that, uh, that was answered with a slap on the face. They were denied military service and classified as enemy alien, a patriotic act, and they're called the enemy and alien, which they were not. They were born, raised, educated as Americans. So there was that insanity uh, immediately after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And they were imprisoned. A year into imprisonment, the government realized that there is a wartime manpower shortage. And here are all young, uh, these young people that they could have had that they classified as enemy aliens. So the answer to drafting people out of a barbed wire fence was a sloppily put together loyalty questionnaire. It was very sloppily put together. Everyone over the age of 17 had to respond to that loyalty questionnaire. One question asked, will you um, bear arms to defend the United States of America? This being asked of my mother, who went into camp with my baby sister, who was still an infant, and a year later she was a toddler. I was six years old by that time. My brother was five years old. She was being asked by that question to abandon her family, her children, and bear arms to defend the nation that was imprisoning her family. It was preposterous. The second controversial question was one sentence with two conflicting ideas. It asked, will you swear your loyalty to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? 
the government assumed that there was an inborn racial loyalty to the emperor. It was insulting. My mother was born in Sacramento, California. My father was a San Franciscan. And for the government to assume that there was an organic racial loyalty was outrageous. So if they answered no, meaning I don't have a loyalty to the emperor, that no applied to the first part of the very same sentence. It was ridiculous. And my, both my parents answered no. And so they were uh, categorized as uh, uh, dis disloyals. And we were transferred to a second uh, internment uh, camp that was called the segregation camp for disloyals. But there was, and those that uh, bit the bullet and swallowed the bitter taste and answered yes to those questions and went and fought with, uh, in a segregated uh, unit, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, came back as heroes. But there is another group of uh, young Japanese Americans that I consider just as heroic. They said, I am an American and I will fight for my country, but I will fight as an American. If I can report to my hometown draft board, with my family back home, I'll be like any American. I will fight as an American. But I will not go as an internee, leaving my family in imprisonment. I will go fight as an American. I consider this a very principled, gutsy American position. But for that, they were tried for draft evasion, found guilty, and sent to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. These young men fought on a different battlefield. They were behind the concrete walls of a federal penitentiary, but they stood strong and firm as Americans, and I consider them American fighters as well. So I consider the terror infamy to be a groundbreaking television series because no other project that deals with the internment has ever dealt with a project on this scale, this massive scale. Ten episodes, ten hours, aired over a ten-week period, going into great detail. So there is a scale, but also the depth of details that we've been hearing about in the costuming, the photography, and the use of light, and to inf infuse that with the, the uh, uh, ancient Kaidang ghost tales to amplify and intensify the uh, horror of that internment. I think this is a groundbreaking landmark uh, uh, television event. And you're the first people to ever see it. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that was something I was wondering about was, you know, that 10 years ago, if, or, you know, you'd go back 30 years, if this series had been made then, it would have been told from a white American viewpoint. Um, and now we're at a point where 
not only is the, you know is this told from the perspective of the Japanese uh, characters, but also using cast of you know of Japanese descent. I was wondering about how important for you that was to be able to do that. Well, the, the, one of the things I'm proudest of is that um, of all of our all of our Japanese American characters, 100% of them are played by actors of Japanese ancestry. Um, which is not easy. Uh, it started because a lot of them speak Japanese, and you just need Japanese speakers in order to do that. But even if, uh, but a number of the Japanese Americans don't speak uh, don't speak any Japanese; they only speak English. But then it became uh, important uh, for for the network, for me, for the, the production team, to have people who uh, had this deep commitment uh, to the project, had a real personal connection. And we had people uh, on our crew who dropped everything to, uh, to, to work on the show. Our first AD, Jason Furukawa, uh, dropped everything to work on our show. And uh, we discovered the first day we shot, there's a racetrack scene uh, in episode two. And uh, after the little safety meeting, he said, and by the way, my parents were interned here. They were in stables seven and eight. Um, it was a, a horse racing track. Uh, um, Ken Kalka, our VFX producer, dropped everything, uh, moved up to Canada to, uh, to to work on our show. Uh, we had background people. We had uh, we mm -hmm. had a, a background actor who who told me after after we had uh, had, had wrapped. He was, again, this was at the racetrack. This was a scene where a whole, uh, I'm giving away uh, episode two, but uh, <laughs> you won't Tune tell in anyone. anyway, folks. You don't tell anyone. It's fine. It's just between us. It, 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 you know, there's a scene where everyone is lined up, you know, to, to they have to report to, to the track. And he, 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 he is Japanese-Canadian, and his parents, Japanese-Canadian, had to report to Hastings Park in 1942. Uh, and he found himself holding two suitcases just like his parents did. Um, 77 years ago uh, uh, at that exact same spot and boarding a bus just like his parents did. And that, that kind of investment and, uh, and, and personal connection, I don't think I'll ever probably work on a project where everyone feels so personally invested in it because it spread throughout the entire crew, even to people. I'm not Japanese-American, by the way. I'm Chinese-American. I, uh, the, 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 you know, and I plugged into it from as an immigrant story. Uh, uh, I think you don't have to be Japanese-American, certainly, because I don't think all of you are Japanese-American. <laughs> you don't have to be Japanese-American to, uh, to relate to what's going on uh, there at all. I think you just, you know, it doesn't take very much to get to an immigrant in anyone's family. Um, so I, I, I think our, you know, our show had a really special uh, bond of people who, who felt a, a, a deep, uh, deep connection to the material. Well, I'm afraid we've been given the wrap-up sign. I know this has is, this is flown past. But uh, the Terra Infamy debuts on AMC on August the 12th. I'm pretty sure I can be confident you'll all be tuning in again. And please, please encourage everybody else to because this series is uh, it's, it's pretty damn special. Uh, thank, you. Thank, thank you, Alex. Thank you, JR. Thank you, John. And of course, thank you, George.
It is day one of the ATX Television Festival, and we are so thrilled to be kicking things off over here, especially in Podcast HQ. My name is Ashlyn Viscosi. I've coordinated sponsor relations with the festival for about six years now, and I am thrilled to be speaking with George Takei. You want to say hello? Hello, how are you? Doing so good. How about you? You look fantastic. Well, that is very kind of you to say. So I take it this is your first time to the television festival, is that correct? It is, as a matter of fact, yes. Uh, My career's been built primarily on television, but uh, this is my first television festival. Well, we are thrilled to have you. How many have you had? Uh, So this is year eight, and I've been attached for six years. Bravo. Yeah. So how are you finding it so far? I know you just walked in the building, but yes. what are your first thoughts? Well, this is my first uh, event here <laughs> at the television. I haven't seen, uh, well, I've been watching TV on at the hotel, uh-huh. MSNBC, so. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, I'm glad I can that talk about that. Amazing. Well, I'm glad that we're starting things off here with you at the podcast. So you came with the show, The Terror Infamy, which I can't help but notice how timely things are given today's the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Would you maybe tell us some about the show that you're bringing here to the festival? Well, D-Day was in the Atlantic and Europe. Uh, my story begins in the uh, Pacific. Uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. We are Japanese Americans. My grandparents came to the United States on both sides. My mother was born in San Francisco. I mean, in uh, Sacramento. And my father was a San Franciscan. They met and married in Los Angeles. And so we're Americans of Japanese ancestry. Mm -hmm. But we look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And this nation, the United States, went hysterical with war hysteria, racism. And that went all the way to Washington, stampeded the president of the United States. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order sending all Japanese Americans on the West Coast. All of us, uh, approximately 120,000 of us, into barbed wire prison camps simply because of our ancestry. There was no uh, charge, there was no trial, therefore. Due process, the central pillar of our justice system simply disappeared. Innocent people simply because of our, the way we look, were put into prison camps. We were at war uh, in the uh, European theater mm-hmm. with Germany and Italy, but Italian Americans and German Americans weren't incarcerated. Right. Only Japanese Americans. It was clearly a racist act. Yeah. And terror infamy, the terror infamy mm-hmm. is about that. And the show is really groundbreaking in that this is the first time that story has been dealt with on this massive scale. You know, there have been a few movies on the internment or a few television episodes, but never on this scale where we, uh, we tell the story in 10 episodes, 10 hours, spread over a 10 week period. And so therefore, the other part of it is it goes deeply into the details of the internment. Uh, What what was it like for Japanese Americans before the war? The impact of Pearl Harbor and suddenly with no charges, soldiers, and I remember that. I'm one of the last generation uh, to have experienced the internment. I was five years old at the time categorized as an enemy alien at five years old. And soldiers, two soldiers bearing 
rifles with bayonets on them, stomped up the, our front porch, banged on the front door with the, their fists, and my father answered it, and literally at gunpoint we were ordered out of our home and taken to the swamps of Arkansas, two-thirds of the way across the country. Yeah. And so it's that story, but in great detail. After a year of imprisonment, and there were 10 camps altogether. Ours was the farthest east in Arkansas. After uh, <clears throat> a year of in imprisonment, the government comes down with a loyalty questionnaire demanding loyalty, very sloppily written, two questions, turned the whole camp in turmoil. Uh, question 27 asked, will you bear arms to defend the United States of America? This being asked of my mother, my baby sister went in as an infant, mm -hmm. and a year later she was a toddler. I was six years old by that time. My brother was five. She was being asked to abandon us and bear arms to defend the nation that's imprisoning her family. It was preposterous. Yeah. The next question, question 28, was one sentence with two conflicting ideas. It asked, Will you swear your loyalty to, to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? The Emperor of Japan were Americans. Right. And, and for them to assume that we had an inborn racial loyalty to the Emperor was insulting. Yeah. So if you answered no, I, meaning I don't have a loyalty to the Emperor to forswear, that no applied to the first part of the very same sentence. Oh, yeah, two-part, okay. It was, uh, you know, another cruel and sloppy form of cruelty. Yeah. My parents answered no to those uh, two questions because they were crazy, they were stupid. Right. And uh, for that, they were uh, categorized as disloyal, which they were not. They were standing on logic and principle. Right. And for that, we were transferred to what they called a segregation camp which um, had all the disloyals. And this camp became the largest of them all, 18,000 people. And, I mean, in uh, again, another crazy overreaction. It had one layer of uh, barbed wire fence, like all 10 camps, but then the two more layers of uh, bar barbed wire fence, and then a half a dozen tanks patrolling the perimeter. Mm -hmm. Patrolling, uh, uh, guarding people who had been goaded into outrage by the, uh, the cruel treatment uh, of the uh, imprisonment. Right. Those tanks belonged on a battlefield fighting the, uh, uh, the battle, not uh, patrolling, you know, uh, American citizens uh, unjustly imprisoned. And so we tell that story all the way to the uh, end of the war and were freed. But that was another. And for us kids, you know, we had adjusted to the regimentation and order, lining up three times a day yeah. to eat uh, lousy food. But then being freed was the worst part for us because hostility was still ripe and housing was impossible. Jobs were well nigh impossible. We, uh, our first home was on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. That was terrifying. Smelly, ugly, scary people yeah. staggering about, shouting at each other, fighting, women sh uh, pulling hair and shrieking. 
and sirens going all the uh, day and night. My, my baby sister said, Mama, let's go back home, meaning back behind barbed wire fen uh, fences, because that's all she knew. Exactly. So this is the story we tell in that detail. But another element that's yeah. unique is this story was harrowing enough. Yeah. But we fuse with it the um, ancient Japanese uh, a literary form called kaidan, oh, yeah. ghost tales, and so those uh, the, the uh, frightening uh, incidents, the uh, the frustration and the anger and the rage are intensified and amplified by superstition, and so ghost stories come into play. Yeah, and the power of this show is that it is very timely, so relevant to our times today in the year 2019. Yeah. The resonance is, you know, on the so southern border, the uh, humanitarian outrage, or the uh, Muslim travel ban, where, again, that sweeping uh, characterization of all people of that faith as potential terrorists. I mean, we were seen as potential spies, saboteurs, uh, fifth columnists, you know. Yeah. This mindless characteriz characterization as one thing and no real discrimination between the innocent and the guilty. Yeah. So this is a powerful show yeah. which is relevant to our times today. Yeah, I was just gonna speak to how powerful everything sounds and especially for those who did not know that the US participated in this way where we had internment camps with Japanese, American, American citizens of Japanese descent. So I'm wondering too, besides the scares that we might see in the show and everything, what do you hope people take away from this? Well, it's, it's a, a gripping piece of drama, Yeah. but ultimately, I hope uh, what they take away from it is some knowledge of how fragile our democracy is, where it can be st stampeded so easily by a major event. And, you know, more recently we had 9-11, uh, and that stampeded people about uh, with the uh, Arab Americans. And we... Uh, I don't, I don't want to get political, but we have this crazy president <laughs> yeah. who's easily stampeded, yeah. you know, and hysterical. And he wanted to, I mean, he uh, ban all uh, Muslims yeah. as potential terrorists. Yeah. He tried the first time. And the heartening thing is people, some people have learned from the uh, internment of Japanese Americans because when Trump attempted his first uh, executive order, thousands of people, thousands of young Americans rushed to the airports to uh, protest that. And uh, uh, attorneys went to the airports to offer pro, bon uh, pro bono legal services. And the deputy attorney general of the United States, Sally Yates said, I will not defend this insane uh, uh, ex executive order. So we are learning, but not enough to make to change policies. And that, that's the thing that can be beautiful about history is that we can learn from it. And it sounds like this show is a great opportunity for those who were not aware to become more informed and help prevent things in the future. Indeed. Exactly as you're mentioning.
Indeed. Yeah. To turn things on to a bit of a lighter note. <laughs> so what are some of your earliest television memories? I mean, you've had just such an amazing body of work, but what inspired you to find TV as your medium? And then was there a certain thing that, that did that for you? Well, I, I was, no, I grew up in the radio generation. And, uh, as a kid, I had my ears glued to the radio at uh, programs like uh, Cisco Kid and This Is Your FBI, you know. Mm -hmm. But when telling this magical thing where pictures appeared on a round screen in our living room, you know, that was fantastic. We're Can't really yeah. getting high tech. <laughs> Black and white pictures on a round screen. And uh, uh, those uh, shows then were like uh, Cecil and Beanie or Happy Theater, you know. But then it started to get much more sophisticated. And uh, Playhouse 90, the first 90-minute live television show written by some of the most promising young playwrights uh, or television writers of that time, people like Rod Serling, Patty Chayefsky, who wrote Network, and it's on Broadway right now with a brilliant per performance by uh, Brian Cranston. Mm -hmm. You know, really wonderful uh, writing. I and mean, it was the writing that compelled the, the audience. But the innovative thing about that was it was live drama yeah. being acted as millions of people all across America w uh, were watching that. It was the worst of theater and the best of <laughs> stage theater and the best of television as well as the worst of television. There, there were some shows where uh, uh, the, the, the story is being played out and you open a door and there's a crewman sneaking <laughs> away from it, you know. So, but you got wonderful television literature yeah. uh, on Playhouse 90 and I, I was absolutely addicted to it every Thursday night. That's amazing. I wish I could have seen that. That sounds truly fantastic. I'm sure there are there are, uh, archives yeah. with Playhouse 90s. And then I got cast. For, this was my first uh, acting job. Oh, that's amazing. I got cast in a show uh, uh, called Made in Japan. And I played uh, an embittered, embittered Japanese soldier who comes back to Japan to learn that my betrothed, played by Nobu McCarthy, uh, has fallen in love with a young American GI uh, uh, with the occupation force, uh, played by Dean Stockwell. And uh, I'm, so I'm very embittered. But the two lovers have a quarrel on a bridge, and he pushes, just, just kind of shoves uh, his girlfriend, and she slips and she uh, tumbles over the bridge and dies. And I'm accused of it because I'm embittered not only as uh, with loss uh, of the war, but the loss of my betrothed to an American soldier. And so it's uh, the trial story of that. And it was a thrill to be working on that for the first time at uh, LA's uh, CBS Television City and the soundstage, the first time I walked into one, this vast space with all the cables and lights up there on the ceiling and all the uh, lights and cameras. I mean, I was just in heaven. 
but also confusing heaven. <laughs> it's like, what is this thing? Will it fall on me? <laughs> That's amazing. And we've talked some about it, too, just with what we were talking about with the terror infamy and the power that TV can have to inform, to move, to help us with our culture and all those different types of things. And terrorize. And terrorize. It's called the terror infamy. <laughs> and infamy is taken from, you know, when uh, uh, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt called the day of infamy. Yeah. But he put us through four years of infamy. infamy. Not only days of infamy, yeah. but years, four years of infamy. Yeah. And, you know, my uh, when I was a teenager, became a teenager, and I, I was curious about my childhood imprisonment, and so I had many after-dinner conversations with my, with my father. And he said, Roosevelt was a great president during the uh, 30s when the United States was being crushed by this enormous depression. And, and fear. He, and fear. And people were, you know, he said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Yeah. Well, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, he got stampeded by the fear yeah. himself. So he's a fallible human being. And that's what my father told me. Our democracy is a great democracy. It's a people's democracy. And the ideals are noble, but it requires people who actively participate, inspired by those no, uh, noble ideals of our democracy. And steward that process. Yes. And, you know, it's a participatory democracy. You engage in the process. But people are also fallible human beings, and people make mistakes. And so for a people's democracy to exist, it is existentially dependent on people who cherish the ideals and um, participate. And my father uh, uh, took me downtown to the uh, Adlai Stevenson for President campaign headquarters. You light up. Uh You were Adlai Stevenson. I have two degrees in political science. It's everything Ah. I've typically studied, and it's fascinating. Well, so we were volunteers. I didn't volunteer. My father took me there and volunteered me. But (laughs) I understood. I mean, it was an exciting place, you know. There's there's excitement and glamour and tension, all the things of a drama, you know. Yeah. And uh, I understood what it takes. And so I, you know, after school, almost every day, I was in the headquarters stuffing envelopes and answering phone calls and uh, going on the, on the sidewalk and leafleting. I mean, that's what our democracy is dependent on. Yeah. And that's what I learned from my father. He said, Roosevelt was a great president, yeah. but he was also a fallible human being. The, the system is made of fallible human beings. And so we need, uh, we need lots of people who cherish those ideals and actively participate to keep fallible people from overwhelming our process. Yeah, and his ability to contextualize the person from the position and what the power of democracy can do and the right. limitations of humans and humanity. That's that's beautiful that he was still so able to engage in the process and to teach you that. And have He was an amazing man. I realize now, I mean, a lot of Japanese-American parents of my parents' generation, after the war, they were so hurt, so pained, and so... Uh, embarrassed by they they shouldn't be embarrassed but they didn't talk about it with their children 
other than that they were in camp. And so younger Japanese Americans don't know anything more than that their parents or grandparents were incarcerated. You know, uh, I, we uh, developed a musical on the uh, internment of Japanese Americans, Allegiance, and we did it on Broadway. And uh, these uh, young people, would, young people, they're in their 40s and 50s, you know, from my vantage point, yeah. <laughs> anyone under 65 are youngsters. But they would come backstage to tell me how moved they were by the, yeah. uh, by the show and tell me that their parents were in camp. And I'd say, oh, which camp were they in? There were 10 of them. Yeah. Complete blank. They don't know. Yeah. And so I'd ask them, well, do you know where it was? Was it in Wyoming? Was it Arizona? Was it in Idaho? Yeah. Blank. They don't know. And that's also why projects like uh, the Terror Infamy is so important, okay. to educate Japanese Americans on their own heritage. Yeah. And then to bring up those questions and to connect family in exactly. ways where that's, it's a beautiful thing. So I want to close with one last question, which we've talked about it some already. But why does TV matter? What can TV do to help us as citizens and help grow our society? The media is a powerful instrument. It can shape perceptions and attitudes and how we behave. Up until recent times, and I mean, I'm very mindful of uh, the power of television, movies, stage plays, radio shows. Asians and Asian Americans were stereotyped. And the stereotypes were sold by the media, were either servants or buffoons or villains. And that was embedded in the public perception of us. And that's why it was so easy for politicians, you know, uh, hysterical politicians, to characterize us as enemy aliens. When the facts were, we were born here, raised here, we were Americans, and we weren't the enemy. In fact, right after Pearl Harbor, young Japanese Americans rushed to their recruitment centers to volunteer to serve in the military. This act of patriotism was answered with a slap on the face. They were denied military service and categorized as enemy aliens and then imprisoned. So, you know, we, uh, uh, people are easily misled and, and perceptions are formed by the media. And it's because of that that we were so easily, uh, the the nation was uh, supportive of the idea of imprisoning us. And so it's the media that can help change that. And we think that with the terror infamy, we can lead people to thinking about our democracy and how we can make it a better democracy. I think that we will. It's just getting everybody back to a place again of conversation. Mm -hmm. It's what you were talking about too, when we operate out of ignorance and not understanding those people around us. How can we use media and the medium of television to do something where it draws people together and creates conversation to learn from and grow with each other, not divide us further apart? Exactly. Well, this, it sounds like it has all the power to do so, and I'm thrilled and cannot wait to be seeing it. We're actually playing it today at the television festival, though the rest of everybody else will have to wait until August the 12th on a 
AMC. That's correct. Yeah. AMC for 10 weeks. 10 weeks. I will be glued to my couch watching those. I cannot wait. And this has been so lovely chatting with you. Oh, thank you yeah. very much. Right here in Austin, Texas. Here in Austin, yes. And enjoy the rest of your festival. I can't wait to hear what you think when you come back for your second year. Yes, I'm looking forward to it <laughs> already. And uh, grave about the enormous support, the great audience that de we developed for the Terror Infamy. <laughs> All right, well, thank you. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and A.J. Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.